Two weeks ago, we began the book of 1 Samuel. The genre of the book is called historical narrative. It's basically stories of factual history in the lives of real people. Real people who were uniquely set apart on God's authority, declaring them to be his very own people. But the history of mankind, right from the very first two human beings in the Garden of Eden, is one of continual failing. The human race, even before the stain, as we call it sometimes, of sin that was passed on to all of us from Adam and Eve, the human race was quickly wayward and has been ever since. And so there is great need and great value in historical perspective. We can't see into the future, but we can see into the past. The Apostle Paul, again, who wrote to the Corinthians, wrote to the church at Rome, and he says, For whatever what was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. The book of 1 Samuel is the continuation of the book of Judges, which was God's merciful attempt to rein in the perpetual wickedness of his people. The importance of all of history is that we learn from the mistakes and the sins of others and we don't repeat them to the end that we have hope. Oh, but only, if only God were president. Sometimes we Christians may fantasize about an Old Testament type of theocracy where in fact the Lord God Almighty himself was truly the head of the government where God was involved up close and personal in the daily affairs of his people and of the world and where miracles were rather abundant as God worked his will upon the cultures of the day and yet And yet it did not bring what everybody had hoped for, what we hope for and wish for and can't wait for. Even God's intimate, personal headship of the governance of his people did not bring about peace and goodwill towards men. Philip Yancey in Disappointment with God. I think the book is now out of print, which is unfortunate, but it can still be found on Amazon. It is a profound work. One of the best, my top three books ever outside of the Bible. I highly recommend it. Disappointment with God. Where even with God as the head, It did not bring peace and goodwill toward men. The revamped governance of God's people under the judges had its successes, to be sure. And it had its failings, to be sure. 
and we still see the cyclical pattern of ups and downs throughout history, and it continues right to this day. Think about even our own lives. If you were to graph my life out with the upward slopes being relative obedience and the downward slopes the opposite, my life, and I believe most of our lives, would look way too similar to a graph of the long-term performance of a stock market. But even with that, you see, there's, if you, if you, I don't remember if you know, if you, well, I don't even know what they teach anymore today. But you would take a line from the first point to the last point. And you would hopefully, in this case, there would be, even if perhaps very gradual, there would be an increase in holiness, an increase in obedience. Such is the reality of all of our lives. But our lives continue to move along the timeline of history, albeit with fits and starts. And for the people of God in the day of the judges, we should be sobered to read the book's concluding epitaph. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah. Well, it may be comforting for we Christians to think, oh, those doggone pagans, this epitaph, And I do not say this flippantly, lightly, or casually. But this epitaph could be the headstone of the church around the world, right down to and including the evangelical churches of America. Eli and Samuel, the two key personages in the book of 1 Samuel, pick up where the judges left off. Elkanah, A good man and his wife Hannah could not have children. And so Elkanah did what was acceptable in the day. That's lectures in and of itself. And Hannah cries out and pours out her barrenness as Elkanah takes unto himself another wife with which to have children to perpetuate his name. And in Hannah's distress, Eli the priest sees her in a moment of spiritual intimacy, totally misreads the situation, thinking she's drunk. And when she explains, he says, go your way and go in peace. We pick up with 1 Samuel, first chapter, verse 19 through 28. They arose early in the morning, that is, Elkanah and Hannah, and they worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him that he may, be, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, says to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. And so the woman remained, that is Hannah, and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she weaned him, she took him up with her, 
with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. We don't know how young. We think of weaning as being when a baby is done nursing. And that certainly is part and parcel of what weaning was in the day. But it could also include the child's early education. So we don't know. Samuel could have been anywhere from three to six years old, maybe even seven years old. But he was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the boy to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here, stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The Lord answers Hannah's plea for a child. On the surface, a casual and incomplete reading could easily see this as just a miracle of kindness towards a sorrow-filled woman. But as we're going to see, it was way more than that. Hannah responds with her joy, with a prayer of thankfulness, But she also responds, so read it carefully, with so much more. With this pregnancy, there is much more to it than a barren woman receiving the gift of childbirth. Her gain goes far beyond her gain. Think about that. Whenever and however the Lord blesses you, He doesn't do so necessarily only or solely or even primarily for your benefit, but for benefit of the kingdom. The prayer of Hannah, chapter 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Wait, wait. I, I thought we were on a prayer of celebratory joy at the birth of your child. We are. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I don't know if she was thinking of Panina. Remember, that was the concubine who used to taunt her. I have babies and you don't. Old material. With marginal understanding there. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. I thought this was about a baby. It is. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. What a prayer. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. That's insensitive. 
I know, right? Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And he, at the end of this prayer, will exalt the horn of his anointed. I thought this was about baby Samuel. Hannah's heart exalts the Lord. We're told that. She rejoices in God's salvation, both in her context, both spiritual and though physical as well. Her confidence is in the fact that her God, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, is a sovereign God. And in that sovereignty, God's justice for the oppressed, the Lord's unbeatable might, her confidence in the hope of ultimate victory over all things. And the final line contains the poignant foreshadowing of the future hope. And that is that Jehovah is going to raise up above all else the coming Redeemer, Messiah, Savior, Jesus. Wow. Now. If we have been diligent to invest in the whole counsel of God's word, believing it to be truly God-breathed, this prayer of Hannah's ought to sound strangely familiar. For about a thousand years later, another prayer will be uttered by a woman without a child that sounds nearly as if she used the prayer of Hannah as a template. Young Mary has conceived. She's conceived a child without participation of a man. And when her relative Elizabeth receives a surprise visit from Mary, she welcomes Mary as the mother of her Lord. And then Mary offers a prayer. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed he has given help to israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy he spoke to our fathers to abraham and his descendants forever mary's prayer thousand years later her soul exalts the lord she rejoices in her god and savior who has taken note of his bond servant undeserving as she was to receive such an honor the occasion of Hannah's song is the birth of the one dedicated, remember the vow of the Nazarene that she took, giving her son completely over to the Lord, and in that day, very literally, turning him over to the priest, even as a young child. Dedicated exclusively for God's 
purposes of that boy on earth. And he is a portent of the Lord's coming anointed Redeemer. The occasion of Mary's song is not the future, is not the anticipation of a future hope, but is the, it is the certain birth of that promised Savior, the anointed Redeemer coming to do the will of the Father. Where Hannah rejoices about what the Lord will do, Mary rejoices of what the Lord has done. He's taken up the cause of the poor and the needy and rewarded the faithful. Both prayers are ten verses long. And Mary's prayer contains 15 discernible allusions or direct references to numerous Old Testament writings. So you see, Hannah is far more than a lucky woman for whom God chose to answer a prayer about a baby. She's a messenger of the Lord and an exemplar of what Jesus taught on the road to Emmaus. And that is that the whole Bible was about him. Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to the disciples who were trying to, they were clueless as to who they were walking with, and this was just after the, resur- or the, yeah, the resurrection of Jesus, but he had not yet ascended. Jesus says to them, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the, prophet, the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? Remember, they were bummed out because they figured, that's it, our Messiah's dead. That didn't work out. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. And with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The church of Christ and Christ followers all over the world err egregiously in not studying the whole Bible. It is about Jesus, man's only hope for eternity. Think about everything that people crave today. Think about all the protests about everything and and, and anything and nothing. And the world's solutions for all the problems. And they all only will ever find their resolution in one person. Jesus, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And without real belief in a real coming king, life is without center If you have no center, your life wobbles, and that wobble increases unto collapse. Anybody in here ever taken pottery? Let me see your hand. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. A million years ago, Barbara and I took a pottery class together. 
that centering idea came right from there because there's a visual picture, actually many visual pictures in my head when I was taking the pottery course with Barb. Centering is how you start out making a pot on a potter's wheel. You take the lump of clay and you have to get it in the dead center of the wheel. And it's really hard. Actually, it is. You take the lump and you go, and then you turn the wheel on to see if it's centered. And you get the, it's not centered. So you try again. Because you know what happens, as I experienced many times, the world of art is not my genre. It's like, come on, it's only off a hair. And it's only going a little bit, just a tease. So I'm going to start working on my pot. And as you work and you get your thumbs in there and you're building this pot and you're getting it to come up and come up, guess what happens to the wobble? It starts going, and all of a sudden you're, you're whatever you're going to, you know, I never started out saying, here's what I'm going to make. <laughs> whatever I ended up with, I said, cut two notches in it, call it an ashtray and give it to somebody. I don't know. <laughs> because... And there were a couple times when I was really proud, you know. The, the key in pottery is to get very thin walls, right? That's the mark of good pottery. <laughs> I, have, I had, just till recently we threw them out, I had little, little, little thingies, I don't know, like this big and this tall, and they weighed like 19 pounds, <laughs> okay? I don't even know how this pot is. It's like the black hole of clay. Anyway, if you're not centered... The more and more you go along the process of trying to build something, the wobbles get even wobblier until there's your thing all over the place. It's a good picture for our lives without knowing the center then upon which to center one's life. Life can't have balance in taking it out to the real meaning is that life without center, or the center, is life without purpose and life without meaning. Do you ever wonder why millions upon millions of people get so totally engulfed today and give their hearts and their souls to the most asinine distractions of life? The things that people invest themselves in we need to remove every monument in the country that offends somebody. And then it gets more absurd. We need to eliminate the names of those people to whom those monuments were erected. How ridiculous does it get without center? Do you know what ESPN did? When all this was occurring, they had an announcer scheduled to do the first football game of the University of Virginia. They took him off the schedule to announce that game. Do you know why? His name was Robert Lee. You say, what? That is not fake news. I can't believe you don't know about it. I don't even watch the news. And I knew about this. It was everywhere. That's honest goodness truth. You Google it. I'll give you ten. I'll give you a hundred bucks to somebody who finds out that that was false. That that was fake news. It's absolutely true. 
And there were other examples of that exact same thing. People with different names. Oh, we, oh, well. Hmm. Are you kidding me? If you don't have center, it just wobbles and wobbles and wobbles until... And we have a world today that's going... How do you spell that? I don't know. And then people cheer when people make those kinds of decisions. And they applaud it. And they stand up and they dare to sound intellectual and sensitive. And they're usually called politicians up for re-election. Because their souls tell them they have nothing else worth living for. And so they have to cling and find meaning in something, anything. The latest example of this is the absolute fiasco within the National Foolishness League. Where offense where offense has replaced offense. Okay, be careful, Pastor, now. You know, the Pats are, the Pats are playing today. <laughs> careful now. Why has this country become so sensitive and emotions so heightened that programmed, organized, institutionalized offense is now the national pastime and the supreme idol of our current age. I will tell you why. It is found in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God has made it evident to them. There is no such thing as an atheist. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, because of that, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts, for they exchanged the truth of God, who has revealed it to everyone, for a lie. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. The list that follows is right out of the playbook of the godless, liberal culture in which we reside. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, do we all know what a depraved mind is? Not a deprived mind, a depraved mind. It is a mind that is corrupt, perverted, deviant, degenerate, debased, immoral, unprincipled, licentious, lecherous, indecent, sordid, wicked, sinful, vile, iniquitous, nefarious, twisted, and sick. God has given them over to a depraved mind. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, 
but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Tuesday, this week, past, just this past Tuesday, I was down at the Christian Civic League and met with a lawyer from First Liberty Institute, I think is the name. He is here because there is a lawsuit that is kicked up from a former faither named Tony Richardson, who apparently is, I don't know if she's a teacher, but whatever, she works at Coney High School. And do you know what she had the despicable audacity and nerve to do? She told another employee at the school that she would pray for her. I know. I'm aghast. Shameful. She did it not once, but twice. Two separate occasions. And if reality isn't bizarre and twisted enough, the two people involved, the one who said, I'll pray for you, and the one who she was saying it to, both go to the same church. I kid you not. I, can't, I couldn't make that up. Right now, today, transgender is a reality at Winslow Junior High. Oh, yes. I don't have time to go into detail. It's causing great consternation for some of our teachers and staff. In Oakland, at the Meselonsky Middle School, October 11th is coming out day, national coming out day. And so the school counselor sent out links to handy dandy books and resources to help these ones come out because we know some are planning to come out and you know how difficult that can be and we have to support them and we got to we got to and some christians from this church are involved in all of those places i've been preaching for how many months even years that you know what, one of these days this crud is going to land in central Maine. And the faith that we talk about is going to actually start costing something if we live it out. The fool has said in his heart, Psalm 14, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. Solomon writes in Proverbs 19, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Reality, which has only ever, ever been rightly defined by God, is now fluid. All of which is the result of the d divinely approved, depraved mind. History has a way of asserting itself and inserting itself into the present day. From our vantage point in time where we stand looking back on the Old Testament, Hannah gives birth 
to more than a miracle baby who is just a gift to a godly woman from a loving God. God gave his people through the birth of Samuel a reminder that would last 900 years that the anointed one, the anointed one, the true king is coming and he alone will be the answer to the state of sinful mankind and to true oppression and true unrighteousness and true dastardliness and true murder and true perversion and all of it. There is only one and he is coming. It is as true today as it was thousands of years ago. Yes, the king now has come and nothing changed in mass anyway. In fact, things are getting worse. But change has happened and is happening one heart at a time. And that will continue until the Lord says, now it's too late. The king came and the world is still messed up and getting messier. But the king is coming again. And this time it will be for judgment. And I have to tell you something. I am so tired of the mindset of Christians who don't want to be judged. Don't judge me. So I am telling you this. I'm on a knee. No, I'm on two knees. Okay? Please, please judge me. When you see me outside the bonds, the bounds of this book, judge me, please. Because believe me, I would rather be judged by you and being given the opportunity to have whatever scales might be there removed so that I can repent rather than being judged by the judger who is coming. Judge me, please. And like it or not, I will continue to judge you because contrary to what the ignoramuses out there and the illiterate biblically of the, of the church today, we are in fact called to judge one another. Just make sure that the judgment, quoting scripture, is a righteous judgment, meaning it is according to this, not according to, well, I think... Well, I feel, well, I'm offended, well, I don't like, well, I never thought, I don't care. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, make a righteous judgment, and may God grant us the ability to repent. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that happens to be Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I am imploring faith, evangelical, free church, to pull our collective heads out of our collective 
duffel bags. <laughs> to live circumspectly under the authority of the righteous, holy King God, Jesus, who hates sin just as much today as He did throughout the Old Testament and showed His anger and His wrath. May God have mercy on His church and fill us with a renewed boldness. Thy kingdom come. Father in heaven, by Your grace, tear away the sheaths over our hearts and our souls. Give us sensitivity to your spirit within that every time we are tiptoeing down a line that the world has established rebuke us in our souls and draw us back to you in Jesus name Amen